Come with me to John chapter 8. I don't know of a line in literature that fits more appropriately to this time we're living in right now than the opening paragraph of Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. The best of times, it was the worst of times. We were going everywhere, we were going nowhere, and so on. Very, very chaotic. Still, God remains. In John chapter 8, I'm going to begin at verse 56. Obviously, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to his contemporary leaders. And he says that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Amen. John eight fifty nine. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Amen. Now we're in a series of messages entitled, What's Next? And again, that's not a question mark as though it was an interrogative. What's going to be next? We know what's coming next. But as I told you last week, it was just convenient since this is just two days after Christmas and last week we preceded the Christmas season to look back because the next installment of what's on the prophetic calendar is an antichrist person. Even though we know from reading First John that from the first century there were many antichrists, small a, plural. But the next event is the rise of an antichrist. How soon? No one knows. No one can say. But the events of our days, the signs that we see, surely speak that it can't be too, too far off. But in order to understand what is anti-Christ, we have to understand Christ. I want to read this to you from C.S. Lewis, probably his most notable work, Mere Christianity. And I want to remind you of what I told you last week. When we come to the end of Jesus, well, his ministry on earth, we see that he's crucified. Not because of what he did, and not as almost everybody. He's probably exclusive in this respect as well. Everyone who was ever crucified, executed, probably throughout history, were always executed for either what they had done or what they had been accused of doing. Jesus was executed because of who he said he was. It's unique. But C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Listen carefully. He said, one of the creeds that says that Christ is the Son of God, begotten, not created, and it adds, begotten by his Father before all worlds. Lewis wrote, will you please get it quite clear that this has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man, that man was the son of a virgin? We are not now thinking about the virgin birth. We're thinking about something that happened before nature was created at all, before time began. Before all worlds, Christ is begotten, not created. What does it mean? We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. 
And the bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. Or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he is clever enough, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. He cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. Now that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not the sons of God in the same sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not the things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. Now, those words there from Oxford, Cambridge professor and scholar of English literature, C.S. Lewis, brings us into this introduction of the message which I have titled, Jesus, the Great I Am. There are many people, as you know, who, well, they believe, they state, Jesus never really claimed to be God, but he did very clearly, very clearly. As I just mentioned, when we look at the cross, this one, of course, obviously representing Jesus, not just the Roman form of execution. This is why they crucified him. Well, not the Romans as much as the Jews, Jewish leaders, I should say. They crucified him because of who he said he was. Now, there's other dynamics, such as their jealousy of Jesus and other things. But remember, I told you this last week. Everything about Jesus is unique. This will be the reason why. But again, why God chose to come into this world as what's thought to be, and I gave you the references from history, to be the son of a Roman soldier, Panthera, an illegitimate son, or as we use the word, and the word is used, bastard child. He starts out that way, the son of an adulteress, or so it's thought. Yet the scriptures say, no, this is the Holy Spirit. It's pretty fantastic. And he ends his life, I mean, the physical part, on a Roman cross with all these criminals, well, two in particular, but the whole thought of execution in the cross was the fact that the worst of society and only the worst of society found themselves on a Roman cross. Much like we have, or at least we had, when we had the death penalty. It's not reserved for everybody, not reserved for the smallest of crimes, petty thefts. It's reserved for the worst. And Jesus died with the worst. And he's born as a man, but it's thought to be that he was born as a bastard child. Yet, and let me use the word Christianity, yet for 2,000 years, Christianity goes to exclaim that this is God. It seems to violate not just common sense and common knowledge and nature and all these things. It seems to almost violate everything. Jesus would come into the world in such a way. God would come into the world in such a way. Die on the cross, not because of what he did once again, but because of who he said he was. So to put this away, and C.S. Lewis makes this point in his book, Mere Christianity, we don't have an option to say Jesus was a great teacher, but I don't accept him as God. And I told you on social media, somebody wrote to me with the title of last week's message, Jesus name above all names. And the remark that this person made, I don't know who it is, said to me, even above the name of Yahweh. I didn't write back. I still haven't written back. I'm not going to write back. It's equal to. It's the same name. That's what this book declares. The fact that Jesus came into the world in such a unique way and against, again, all common sense and common knowledge of how children are ordinarily born, they're made, procreated by man. But the creeds say, because the book says, no, he was begotten. Jesus would say of himself, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Now we have the word only. 
There's a doctrine that has been around for some time. I don't know how much it's in vogue now, but it was a few, well, decades ago, a few years back, where preachers would tell you that you are a son of God, just like Jesus. And the answer to that question is, no, you're not. No, you're not. We are adopted. We were made and we were created. Jesus was uncreated. And that fact alone, that claim alone, makes him to be God. Whatever God, as C.S. Lewis writes here, whatever God begets is God. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. And that makes him what he claimed to be here in John 8, 58, the great I am. That's what I want to bring to you today. Jesus claims to be the I am that we'll read later, that Moses met there in the desert as he was called to ministry, as he was called to go back to the country of Egypt and tell the Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And we know the story. I want to just say this now, because I think if we just accent Jesus' deity or his part in the Trinity, it could get confusing for some. Maybe not for you sitting here, but for some watching and listening. The God of the Bible is the only God that there is. And we see this again. The scriptures are replete. Verses, for instance, in Isaiah, there's no other God beside me. I know not any, is what God says through Isaiah. And he says, there was no gods before me, and there'll be no gods after me. I am the Lord. It's only me. And so we go through history. We go through religions where there's counterclaims of many gods and all of that. But there isn't. There's one God. Now, what makes the revelation of the Bible unique is that the Bible shows us that God is one. He's only one, but he has three persons. And this is what people trip on, even Christians, professing Christians. The doctrine of the Trinity. The word is never used, but the doctrine is certainly there. There's no question. Jesus is the second person of that Trinity. And I'd like to just give you a couple of ways that you can think about this so that the doctrine is a little easier to accept intellectually because this is what trips people up. First of all, let me state what in theology is known as Sabellianism. Bishop Sibelius came up with this idea, which at first seems like a good idea, but let me explain to you that it's not really a good idea. He came up with, and is still promoted today in certain circles of Christian churches, that Jesus was the Son, yes, and he was God, so they believe in his deity, but I give you an example from my own life I think would fit. You see, when I'm here, you know me as pastor. When I go home, when I had children at the house, they know me as father. Now, my mom, this is another way to look at it there. My mom has been staying with us, and so she only knows me as son. So on one hand, I'm the son. On the other hand, I'm the father. And on the other hand, I am the pastor. And it seems to fit. It seems convenient. But here we have a problem because the scriptures show Jesus speaking to the father. And we see the Father speaking back. We see the Holy Spirit a little further, especially in the book of Acts, speaking to the early church. We see Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit and stating that he will testify of me and that he won't do anything of himself, but he will receive from me. Then Jesus says, as I receive of the Father. So Sabellianism doesn't work. When you talk about me being pastor and son and father, or even if you want to put in your husband, but we make it three, those are offices. They're not three people. And yet God is not three people either. Well, how do we think about it? How do we figure this out? Can it ever really be figured out? Well, we know that the universe is only thought of as one. We don't talk about universe plural. We talk about the universe. School children know this. 
we're taught from an early age that the universe is comprised of space, then of matter and or energy, and of time. Space, matter, time. But we never talk about it as though the universe is three, the universe is just one. But it's comprised of space and matter of time, and they're not separate, yet we can study them separately. If I had the chalkboard up here, it's an interesting analogy, I think, as well. And we've done this before in our studies. If I take a one, you know, we're doing simple multiplication here. A one, and put a times sign and a one, and a times sign and a one. We know on the other side of the equation, it's only one. But we see three. But it's still just one in mathematics. The universe is only one universe, comprised of space, of matter, and of time. Another example that I like to think about is what's known as the triple point. Referring to water, which I guess would be the simplest of elements to give you the idea that comes from chemistry, the triple point of water. When you put water in a vacuum, a right, vacuum tube, so there's nothing in there but hydrogen and oxygen, right? Hydrogen two, oxygen one, H2O. Everybody knows H2O. We even use that sometimes to get a glass of water, we'll say I'm gonna get some H2O. All right, so nothing complicated. We put hydrogen and oxygen, H2O, in a vacuum tube. There's nothing in there but hydrogen and oxygen, two and one, H2O. But if we were, and this can be done, it is done, it's chemistry. This is something very simple. When we heat that tube to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 32.01, and when we have pressure on that element, right, water, and we bring that pressure to 0 0.006. The combination of the pressure and of the temperature, it gets to a certain point, right? Which is the point, 32.0135. That's the temperature, and then the pressure at 0 0.006 and so on, there's more numbers to it. All of a sudden, the water will become solid, it will remain liquid, and it becomes vaporous or steam, but it's only one element in there. And at that point, the triple point of water, and using water as the example, at that place, these curves, they meet, they all have the same point. So for people to say, whoever they may be, how can God be this and how can God be that? And even when theologians such as Sibelius, Bishop Sibelius, a long time ago, try to picture the Trinity, it's not accurate. But the point is this, why does it seem so fantastic intellectually that God who created chemistry God who created the universe, God who made all things, is himself a triune being. I don't find it intellectually so hard to believe, but people struggle with this in Orthodox Judaism in particular, Islam as well, and some others. They reject this because they say it's un-whatever and unscientific. Well, it can't be unscientific because there's three major religions in the world, Orthodox Judaism, we could just say Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they say there's just but one God. But to reject the Trinity based on what? The fact that the universe has space, matter, and time, and it's just one universe. And the fact that we have in chemistry not only the triple point of water, but of gold and other elements as well, where the pressure and the temperature, when they reaches a certain point, can make it to be, at that moment in time, solid, liquid, gas. I don't know why it seems so fantastic. It's like the Apostle Paul said, why do you, O king, think it's such a hard thing for God to raise the dead? You see, for me, because he's God, he can do anything. And it may, of course, not fit the pattern. Certainly, Jesus being thought of as a bastard child doesn't fit the book. But that's the conclusion that we would all have reached if we were there and a young teenager comes forward and saying, I'm pregnant, but God did it. No. We would have had the same doubts 
Had not God visited Joseph and, of course, the Magi and others, we would have came to the same conclusion. You see, because God, obviously, is above nature, supernature. So we talk about the supernatural. God is obviously above his creation, of which we are a part. And he's above us. So we pray to him and we worship him. And we ask him for wisdom. And we ask him for strength and all these things because we know. Intuitively and biblically, we know that he's above us. He's greater, greater than we are. And greater doesn't even come close to a proper description of God. For God to do anything other than what is impossible in the nature, since God cannot cease to exist, well, he can't do that. The old kids thing that we tossed around as children, can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it up? Well, no. Those things are ridiculous. We don't entertain those type of thoughts. God can't cease to exist. That being understood, God is God and can do anything as Jesus teaches us, for with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. So we come along now and we see Jesus in ministry and the diseases that the physicians can't heal, he heals. And I always like on this line here to say, and he still heals. He is still the healer because he cannot change. I'm fascinated, I really am, by theologians who come up with these rather stunning explanations of why there's no miracles today or the gifts of the Spirit is gone. Based on what? You can't base it on the book and you can't base it on God because God does not change. He doesn't change. So we have this evidence, I'd say evidence, in the universe, in chemistry, in math, and there's probably more, of triunity, where there's three, but there's just one. I hand that to you so we have something to work with when we talk about, number one, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which he did frequently? And we have a tendency to think Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man was what it looks like, obviously. He's 100% God and 100% man, and that is what he is. But see, C.S. Lewis was saying something different. He was saying, when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's not talking about the virgin birth, as we would think. We would naturally think. And this is where the confusion comes in as well, because, you know, you say, well, in this case, he's speaking as the Son of Man. In this case, he's speaking as the Son of God. But we can't have that kind of dichotomy when we talk about God. So then what is this reference? Lee Strobel, who wrote the book, The Case for Christ, former editor, one of the editors for the Chicago Tribune, graduate student of Yale, where he studied law, and he became a legal scholar, not a lawyer, but an expert in legal matters. And he wrote for the Chicago Tribune and did a lot of interviews with people and et cetera and so on. And so in his book, The Case for Christianity, he goes around to interview scholars Biblical scholars. He was atheist. His wife, all of a sudden, becomes born again. He's not happy with that. So he investigates for himself. Actually, he picked up something he started some time ago, and he comes back to it. And in this interview, he's talking to a professor, Craig Bloomberg, just a tremendous biblical scholar. And this question comes up in the interview of Jesus being the son of man. This is a great thing. During the interview, as Bloomberg mentions the Son of Man, he stops, Lee Strobel stopped him, and he said to him, he said, wait a second, then I want to give you the quote from his book. He said, well, Karen Armstrong, the former nun who wrote the bestseller, A History of God, said it seems that the term Son of Man simply stressed the weakness and mortality of the human condition. So by using it, Jesus was merely emphasizing that he was a frail human being who would one day suffer and die. 
Lee Strobel went on to say, if that's true, that doesn't sound like much of a claim to deity. But here this professor, his whole countenance changes when that is brought up. And this was his answer. He said, look, contrary to popular belief, Son of Man does not primarily refer to Jesus' humanity. Instead, it's a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Come with me. Let's look at this. Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and it was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. If you're in Daniel 7, go back to verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now, for those of us familiar with the Bible, immediately we're brought into the book of the Revelation. And I saw a throne, identical to the vision that was given to Daniel. But the point here is this, that Jesus was not referring to being frail and weak like we are. Yes, it says in all points he was tempted, but it also says without sin. When you read through Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, and I know that you have, you don't see anything about Jesus that's weak and frail. I mean, nothing. Oh, some say, well, with the Garden of Gethsemane, he's crying, Father, if it be possible to let this cup pass from me, see, even Jesus had his moments. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. No, because prior to that, he said, I'm going, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to the cross, and I have the power to go to the cross. I have the power to be crucified. Now, it wasn't pretty, but I have the power to be crucified, and I have the power to be raised from the dead again, to raise myself back up again. Men don't talk like that. To validate my ministry, I wouldn't say, kill me, and I'll raise myself back up again. But Jesus did. If you want to know who I am, kill me, and I will raise myself back up again. Then we see another verse, the Father raised him up. Then in another verse, the Spirit raised him up. And what are we looking at? The one who created the universe is Jesus, the Son of Man, but the Son of Man in the context of the book that he wrote, and he's coming. At the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, it's also chapter 7. Stephen is being stoned, the very first martyr. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, which is Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, third person of the Godhead, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And we get that from Daniel 7 into Acts chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 1, as the Apostle John sees this vision of a menorah, he's already being startled by the things that he's seeing and he will still be startled more by the things he's going to see. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, 
girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shined in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is a direct reference to God as he reveals himself to and through Isaiah. I am the beginning, I am the end. And then we have this also in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 14, same book, book of the Revelation. 14, 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The Son of Man, first of all, in reference to Jesus being the I Am, is not a reference to him being frail and weak like you and me, but rather to his deity as we see him in the Old Covenant in the book of Daniel. We see him coming in the book of Daniel chapter 7 in clouds. We see him in the book of Revelation coming on clouds. We see the Bible revealing to us that which we could not know and learn just from nature or putting facts together or even studying the universe and saying, well, there could be a triune creator or the triple point of water. We see God became a man. And so there's probably no better verse to quote than this one here. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Then verse 14 of John chapter 1, the gospel according to John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Emmanuel. You see, we're coming through the Christmas season here. We've already passed it by. We'll be out of it pretty soon. And people will forget these Christmas songs. And they're not Christmas songs. I mean, there's Christmas songs. But in the church, we have hymns. They're hymns. We probably should be singing them more than just when we decorate our trees or whatever we do. We need to realize that when you say Emmanuel, it's not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a sense. God became a man. The great God, the great I am, became a man. And he's not referring to, I'm just like you, because he's not. He's God. He wasn't weak and he wasn't frail. He was God that took on the form of flesh. And dwelt amongst us. This is whom we know to be Christos or Christos, Jesus, Christos, Jesus, who is the Christ. No other one has come. Jesus said that all that came before me were thieves and robbers. And so has everyone that has come after him saying, I'm the way. Only God can save his own creation. And he has done so. He is doing so right now, and he has yet to consummate the final steps, in which we read in Romans chapter 8 that that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the recreation of our body to be made like his body, immortal. Now, the soul and the spirit is immortal, but man still has to make a choice. I told you many times, and 
Honestly, in my own mind, I think you'd have to have some type of seminar that would have very few breaks in it and go on 24 hours a day, month after month, to really present all of the evidence that is here for the case for Christ being Yahweh, or Jehovah, come in the flesh. And I'll say this again as a matter of application and exhortation. Doctors have their way of evaluating people. The most simple, I think, would be the thermometer, a sphygmomenometer, the blood pressure cuff, and a few other things. Of course, blood work is always a real good example. And interestingly, you always have blood work done. And in Leviticus 17.11, it says, I have given thee the blood for an atonement upon the altar for your souls, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. We know this today. How did Moses know that, who came out of the teachings of Egypt? Know that the life of the flesh that you could tell what's going on in your body by drawing blood and examining it. And we do it all the time, not realizing, or perhaps not realizing. God writes these things in here. There's, and I'm going to give you a little, I'll call it a nuance, but it's not really a nuance. When we get to this, Jesus being the Son of God. Let me read you a few verses here. I'll give you the references. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God... Command that these stones be made bread. Once again, we're not talking about a created being where it says in 1 John, now are we the sons of God. We were made. When this reference to Jesus is given to him, it's not the same as we read even in the Old Testament. In Job, the sons of God came before the Lord when he sat on his throne. No, it's not the same. Everything under God is created. It's made. Only God is uncreated. And I mentioned this just recently, but let me mention it again for those of you who didn't hear it. No one argues with what makes up the universe, space, matter, and time, space, matter, energy, and time, matter, and energy being the same. Uh, The triple point of water, this is all established. Nobody debates that. But when it comes to the Christ here, he references himself, or in this case, Satan references him. If you're the son of God, if you're uncreated, so again, in science, we understand in the laws of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. But somebody created it, and we can't create it, and we can't destroy it. But somebody created it, and nobody can destroy it but God himself, and he won't, because he's going to recreate the earth. We also know the law of entropy, that all things have a tendency to decay. Is that in the book? Well, sure, in many places, but I'll give you one that you can look at later on. All flesh is like grass. Grass withereth, and the glory of man, it says, it fades like the flower, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Then the one that I like and I give you so often, though the outward man perishes, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because when you're given the gift of eternal life, it is the uncreated life of God himself, not making us gods. Sons of gods in the term of adoption, or rather in the way of thinking of adoption, but we're still created beings, and we're given the uncreated life of God that has no beginning and has no end. And that is what this is referring to here. If you're the Son of God, chapter 4, verse 6 of Matthew, saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. Very important phrase there, by the way, it is written. But that's another subject. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and so on. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. These are demons, by the way. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? That one that existed before time, that one that existed before the creation of anything. That's the reference. He didn't become the Son of God. Been the Son of God from eternity. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. 
But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have a similarity here between Mark and John in respect that they say in the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? The beginning of time. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, before anything was made, we have God. In his triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And again, I don't believe there's any one thing that we could put our small minds on and say, ah, that's exactly how God works. I told you my belief is that when we go into eternity, because it's eternal, and everything about God is eternal, including knowledge, it would just go on and on and on and on. Whatever subject you're interested, not related to that which decays and dies down here, you'll be able to study it for eternity. You like music? Now, this is my personal belief. I'm a little outside the lines here. But I believe we'll be able to study it for eternity and never reach the end of the study of music. When it comes to God himself, you may choose to just sit before his throne and try to figure him out. And I'm sure that you're going to learn a lot, and I can learn a lot. I'm sure I'll be there with you. And I'm certain that no matter how much we find out about God as we ask him questions, let's say we're just imagining these things now, it'll only open up more questions. And each question has a question. If you want to see how this works, draw a circle and put anything that you want in there. Let's say peace. Put the word peace. Then draw some words that are related to peace. You can put the Greek word irene in there. That takes you off into Greek. And if you keep drawing, these circles just keep going out and out. Some of you are familiar with the Mandelbrot set. And if you're not, look it up. It's pretty interesting. Benoit Mandelbrot came up with this. And it's basically showing infinity in mathematics. It's very, very interesting. Points keep making more points. These little, they look like ladybugs, but you'd have to watch it to understand. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Mathematics, the universe. And we see the finger of God, just like you would see in Michelangelo's fresco. We see the finger of God on everything, the creator. And the creator walked amongst us. And let me jump to this right now. We also see the creator saying, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we know that the church is the ecclesia. That's you and me. Not a building. Not a cathedral. Not a denomination. And not even a local fellowship. I will build my people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Shall not prevail. The creator became man. Referred to himself as the son of man. But not as this woman seemed to think. Well, he's just like us. So he's so frail and weak. In my generation, Jesus was some kind of exalted hippie. There wasn't a hippie, and he wasn't feminine. And we could say, in a manner of speaking, he wasn't precisely masculine the way we think of masculinity. You know, men are different than women. What men do, they cut heads off and stick it on the wall, say, I did that. <laughs> and women are not usually impressed. Although I went into my friend's house one day, and there was all these heads on the wall. I said, I'd known him since high school. So I didn't know you hunted. He said, it wasn't me, that's my wife. <laughs> it was true. I don't think he ever shot anything in his life. His wife would not shot everything. <laughs> anyway, we're different. And Christ is not like us in so many ways. See, in some ways, we're like him. And the goal of salvation is not to bring us to heaven, because God could just save you and bring you to heaven. Children either stillborn or born, then die shortly after. And we believe that the innocence of a child will go directly into the presence of God. He could have did that the moment you raised your hand or asked him into your heart and so on. Be my savior, just take it right up, and that would be the end of that. So what's all this about? It's a process of conforming us 
into his image. It's recreation, regeneration. He's conforming us into his image and his likeness because he is the creator. And he said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then he said this, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And he said this, where two or three are gathered together. See, numbers, I mean, they've got to be important to God in some respects. But I know from being in the pastorate, they're more important to men than they are to God. Because if numbers was important, when we go into the sixth chapter of Genesis, there would have been more than eight people on the ship. It would have been a huge, huge cruise ship with at least a few hundred people. But it wasn't. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't have to be. He's God. And he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. But since, now listen to me, but since we walk by sight and not by faith, we look around and say, oh, yeah, it's kind of like, no, it's not kind of like anything. He said, where two or three are gathered together, as we are here today, and many are around the world, in his name, he says, there am I in the midst. So with reference to Christmas, something I neglected to say earlier, I maintain this. No matter what your difficulty is today, and I know of the difficulties, I've ventured a good guess you don't know about mine, and you're not going to hear them either. But I maintain this, a refusal to capitulate to anything, including my own emotions, which are just like yours, believe me, my own frustrations, my own disappointments, to the detriment of who God is and what he has said, so that at times, just like you, I've got to use an act of the will to produce the joy that God gave me. And some people say, well, you know, the expression, fake it till you make it. And they say, I'm not like that. By nature, I'm not either. But there is a point that even when you're down, I mean, there's songs written about that. I still know the words to many of Nat King Cole's songs, the songs they made famous. I grew up on that music too, believe it or not. And it tells us to smile, one of his songs. Smile even though your heart is breaking. Smile though, you know, all this. And there's something about that because the smile is not for me. It's for you. But human nature says, you know what? It's all about me. This has been the problem from the beginning. It'll be the problem to the end. But for those of us who truly know the word of God, we're outside of ourselves. We're not doing this because we're happy. We're doing this to make other people happy. I already have Christ. I've had him for 44 years. What I'm doing, I'm doing for the sake of other people, for your sake, for those that want, or anybody that will listen. That's our commission. That's our job. Not just my job. That's all of our jobs. All right. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. But let me give you this very quickly. Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said unto her, which is the Virgin Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now that's a reference to the virgin birth, obviously. When Jesus said what we read in John 8.58, the Greek phrase you may know by now, I've used it a few times, ego eimi. Before Abraham was, and that's past tense. Even in English, you understand it's past tense. Where were you? I was, that's past tense. Jesus said before Abraham was, before he was created, ego eimi, I am. Can you see something interesting here? But let's go to the standard text of Exodus chapter 3, 13 and 14. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel... And shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, 
I am has sent me unto you. For those who say, well, Jesus never made a direct reference to himself being God. Well, the Jews certainly know that he did because they immediately took up stones. For what good work do you stone me, he says. Not for a good work, but because you, being a man, you make yourself to be God. Well, that's blasphemy. It'd be blasphemy for any of us to say that. But Jesus never flinched. By the way, let's look at this too. Jesus accepted worship. Jesus told anybody that would listen, the way you honor the Father, honor me. The way you pray to the Father, pray to me. We go along these lines. Yes, he said he was God. And not always with direct phrases like I'm going to read to you. But he said, yes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let me rephrase it for you. If you've seen me, you've now seen Jehovah, which in the past could never happen. Even Moses couldn't see God face to face. So he said, I'll pass you by. He put his hand over Moses in the cleft of the rock. And all Moses could see was his back. For no flesh shall see me and live. But now here comes the word of God, the great I am of Exodus 3.14. And becomes flesh and he walks amongst them. And it says this also in John chapter 1. And he came among his own. It's a paraphrase. He came among his own and his own didn't know him or receive him, either one. They didn't comprehend him. That's King James. They didn't comprehend him. Didn't overthrow him either. And his kingdom will have no end. And we're part of it now. His kingdom will have no end. It's not coming. It's come. It came. John 6, 16. And when even was come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into his ship and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. John 6, 18. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. This is that little nuance that I told you about before. But he saith unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Now here's the value. God has put at the disposal of all of you. Never in the other generation could this be done, but the last hundred years, and more so now. Let me just say as politely as I can, for those of you who hate technology, you've done yourself a disservice, and it may actually be you've done God a disservice. Oh, really? Yeah, I would argue that point with you. What you do with it in the end is up to you. Because I have young people here I've been teaching, and you can go down and you can put on your smartphone, and it is smart. It may be at the moment smarter than you, but it is smart, and it's useful in the hands of someone who knows how to use it. I don't mean making phone calls and text messages. I mean, it's a computer in your hands. It slips in your pocket. You can download the blue letter Bible that has Greek and Hebrew and commentaries right there in your pocket. You can walk around with a library. My personal library on my Kindle, it's over 700 books. That's not including the books I have in my library and then my other library at home. I got a lot of books, but I can carry around most of my library in my pocket. I can carry around Greek lexicons, Hebrew lexicons, Latin, you name it, the Vulgate, all that. So I would suggest you take a second look at technology in what God has given to us for this generation. Right now, we're broadcasting to the whole world. I mean, literally, look at the feed if you want and read some of the remarks, where they're coming from. Pakistan, Punjab, India, Ghana, Nigeria, all over the world. And this was never possible before till now. So what I'm saying is this. Here Jesus comes, and we've read this many times, and we just read what it says. He comes walking on water, and he says unto them, It is I, be not afraid. But if you take the time to look in the Greek text, this is what it says. He saith unto them, Ego, eimi, I am. One of those little nuances, well, not necessarily needed for salvation, but just one of those nuggets that you catch and put in your life. They didn't just say, It's me. 
He said, Egoe me, I am. He's walking on water because he created water. The ionic bonds of water are some of the weakest in chemistry. Yet he's walking on the very thing that he created because he is God. And only God could redeem us. I am. There's so much here. This wouldn't even be an appetizer at a wedding banquet. And I'm already running out of time. Ego me. I am the bread of life in John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. And let me just say something there. I am the light of the world. In the book of the Revelation, we see that God is the light of the city. We see on the Mount of Transfiguration that when the apostles, Peter, James, and John, are standing there, it says that he was transfigured. And the mountaintop became effulgent with light. And it's described that no fuller is the biblical word, King James word. If we took our clothes to the cleaners, I have a white shirt on, no one could get his clothes as white as we saw them. John in the book of the Revelation falls down in front of Jesus, whom he knew. But inside, I am the light of the world. I don't believe it's just metaphoric. We're coming to knowledge and all that. Yes, it applies. But we know in the Revelation that God himself is the light. There'll be no more need for the sun. John 9, 5 says the same thing. John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. And this is very interesting. Our King James gives us advantages that many Bibles don't. It italicizes words that are not in the text for us to read it in English. And if you're reading that now, you should be able to see that in John 8, 28, he says, and then ye shall know that I am. Not necessarily I am here, that's implied. I am. Ego me. John eleven twenty five. 25. I am, one of my favorites. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 15, 1. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. We're talking about the Trinity here, not who's God and who's man and weak and frail. The triune God, which is a mystery, again, I don't know in eternity, we'll ever understand these things. And quite frankly, I hope we don't. Because some people's idea of heaven, even though I think the times we live in now is kind of helping people out to wish for it, our idea of heaven is just so boring. And what are we going to do next? Well, first of all, don't ask me. Look in the Bible. See if there's some clues. I believe there are. Not for today. Not boring. No. Not at all. The Holy Spirit writes to us through the Apostle Paul that whatever we've gone through, whatever we're going through right now, he says, I consider that they won't even be something, I'm paraphrasing this, we wouldn't even think about it. We're thinking about it now because we're in the pain, emotional pain, the physical pain, and all of this. He said, but in that day, he said, I'm convinced that we won't even think about it again. Why? For the greater has come. When we see the one we prayed to and sang about, and I've preached and you've preached and shared with our friends and family, and we see him face to face. Everything will just melt away. We had 30 inches of snow. And in one day, God raised the temperature. It was almost 60 degrees. The rain came down. Gone was the snow. It's going to be like that. Sublimation is the technical word. Everything that we go through will be sublimated, like vaporized, when we see him on that day. And I'm telling you this. If you're serving Christ with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength, you're going to be able to say, it was worth it. You know, sometimes now you feel like quitting, and you want to give up, and you're discouraged, and you're frustrated. But when we see him, and if you can hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. 
It will all have been worth it. Here's something I'm just throwing in. The mystery of the will. Why people choose to reject the evidence? Why God even allows us to choose? It's one thing to choose your food or your clothes or where you live. But to be able to choose God or just to reject him? To be able to say, I'm born again, I'm saved. Uh Uh-huh. And I've been watching your behavior over a period of time, years really. And I'm saying, what about your behavior reflects? I got a little mirror that I use in my office, you know, just check before I come out. And it's a very accurate reflection of me. Not one I'm entirely pleased with, but it's an accurate reflection. I can't argue with the mirror. I had a friend of mine who was a photographer, still a photographer. And if he took a picture and you look at it, say, oh, man, he said, pictures don't lie. And you look at people and they say, well, I know these things, do you? You know that the Jesus you walk with is the I am of Exodus 3.14? Look, we all do this. We get our eyes off of God and what we put him on, we put him on this earth. Our brother there with Christmas Eve was saying this. And then the song says, if we turn our eyes on Jesus, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And if you're following Christ with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, that's what you're finding out. You're finding out things that bothered you even a year ago, let alone 10 years ago, don't bother you quite as much. Because your eyes are fixed on the great I am. He's walking on water, coming to his church and to his people. And he's not just saying, hey, it's me. He's saying, I am. Be not afraid. I am Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, it says, And under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, not even the tip of an iceberg. In John chapter 20, I'm finishing with this, verse 26, the Apostle John has a habit when he writes to say, oh, this is why I wrote the book. This is why I wrote this. All right? Now, we see wider applications, but authors will do that, especially nonfiction. They'll say, now, I'm writing this book, so John chapter 20, verse 26, and after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. If you have a peace that comes and goes, it's not the peace of God. When God's peace comes, it stays. So why does it come and go? Well, because your mind is doing like this. And we've all done it. What I'm disciplining myself to do is this. I'm still tempted to look. I'm still frustrated, but now I'm not listening as much so that the peace keeps coming. That I don't lose what I have already have. Peace I leave with you. And here he says, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach here your finger, behold my hands, and reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs, truly, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. I finished with C.S. Lewis, same book, Mere Christianity. The one thing that we notice about Jesus' life Even critics, and that's what Lewis is going to be talking about here. Even those who criticize the doctrine of the Bible. No one ever charges Jesus with being superficial, supercilious. Silly is the word that Lewis will use. And he writes this. And this is the strange, significant thing. 
Even his enemies, when they read the gospel, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Yet everything about Jesus would be arrogant, delusional, conceited, because everything rises and falls on his, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the vine, I am the church. And without me, you could do nothing. And on and on. He's not giving just principles. They're in there too. He's saying, I'm the principle. I'm life. I'm the resurrection. It's me. I'm God. It says here, they, when they read the Gospels, they do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek. And we believe him. Not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we would attribute to some of his sayings. I'm trying here, Lewis writes, to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The words of C.S. Lewis out of the book, I highly recommend you read it. Mere Christianity. Now, as we go to prayer... What does all this do if our lives are not truly changed? If you have the same fear of the stock market and it's been on a real roller coaster that other people have, I would simply say you're weak in faith. I won't say you don't have any faith. But we're living in times where our eyes better be clearly on God. Or, sir, you're going down. Sister, you're going down. I'm not saying to hell. However, we must conclude that the influence of this doctrine and every other doctrine in the Bible, when it hits the ground and the ground is soft, it's fertile. It grows what Isaiah states is the fruit on the trees of righteousness. Is an element about that one who's truly received the word of God. And I say this also, all this talk about the vaccine. I'm studying it, reading up on it, got a few books on it. And in theory, vaccines are supposed to inoculate you against the real disease. The problem that some of us have being brought up in Christianity, regardless of the denomination, is that it inoculated us to the real thing. Some of us have to, we were born again, and I'm one of them. I come up under some really bad pastors. Bad in the sense that they weren't living what they taught. Bad in the sense that they weren't what they were supposed to be or what they pretended to be. And when they were found out, it was a great disappointment. Church splits and all of this. And I'm so grateful for how God saved me. And he saved me and reminded me again and again, no matter how disappointed, no matter how dissatisfied, no matter how jaded, it's all about Christ. And I pray that the real disease of knowing Christ catches you. That the vaccine that you were given as a child or through your years, even your own study can vaccinate you because you come up with wrong conclusions right from the text that's plain. As I said before, I don't have my cell phone, it's inside. You can carry it around with you with references that any pastor in 2,000 years would have loved to have in their pocket, and they didn't, and you can. And for those of you who have the technology, meaning that you have a smartphone, you have the potential. That's all on you. I only know that we're living in the greatest time ever, perhaps since the first century, because Christ, the great I am, is knocking at the door.
Let's bow our heads. Jesus said so many things about the end times and warning us. One of them is the distractions. But one that he talked about also is the one that many Christians don't clearly see. Well, we can recognize drunkenness. That's in there. Jesus said they'll be getting drunk. Stress will do that. And other things. But then he said, and the cares of this world. That's just mundane, everything. I got them, you got them, we all got them. Choke the seed. Choke the word. Now, I would imagine, because I've been your pastor for a long, long time. There's some of you here today, and of course, some that are not here today. It wasn't the devil, you know, these dramatic things, the dramatic sins, the adultery and the stealing and the arrests and the jail. It's just the cares of this world. Pastor, I wish I, you know, really, okay. Well, I can't control what you do. I can only advise you, put your will towards God and say that nothing, nothing is going to deter me. Nothing is going to deter me. Don't be that one at the end that regrets your life. Father, we have limited time on this earth, and those of us, again, who are older, we now realize the words of your book coming through your brother, James, apostle. And what is your life if it is even a vapor that appeareth for a time and then vanishes away? Sublimation, same as the snow. Here for a couple of days, gone. Our life is the same. All human life is the same. Some are shorter than others. Some are longer, but it's all a vapor. So, Lord, we pray today that you would teach us, as it says here in the Psalms, to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Help us, God, to be people that are truly wise and realize the signs of the times, the age in which we live, and that we would know what to do. Cause our hearts to turn away from all that's evil. And we pray, deliver us from the evil. Deliver our homes and families, our children and grandchildren and spouses and mothers and fathers. Deliver us from the evil. For your book again declares that the whole world lies in wickedness. Come out from among them, you said. And whose voice is this? Now, that's not just a teacher. That was never left open to us. It's the great I am calling out of the burning bush. Come out. Be separate. Except the Lord. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Father, today I pray that every heart that is here in the sanctuary, those that are watching on the live stream, those that are listening on the radio, their hearts will be fertile and soft. Receive the seed of the word of God so that in the end we can give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. And you love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love each other. So as always, God, we close with that. Two great commandments. Greatest is love you. Second greatest is love each other. Help us, God, to do it. We give you all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory belongs to you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.